Good morning, Trinity Park. It's the day after Christmas, December 26th, which is a day that can be a little bit disillusioning for us as we think about uh, what just happened and what's coming in the new year. You've opened up all your presents, you've cooked, you've cleaned, uh, all the kids are playing with their toys, you've synced up your new technology, and now you're, you're wondering what comes next. I'm sitting here today or standing here today at Trinity Park in our new building. Yesterday, actually, we had our first service in the new building. I'm preaching the day after that. And the room now is totally empty. And I think that's what it can feel like sometimes on the 26th. We've done so much. We've prepared so much. We've opened up all the presents. And then there can be a feeling of emptiness that comes in. A couple of things going on in your heart. You're probably hoping now you can get some rest after everything that you've done. Can I just get some rest? And depending on how old your kids are, that may be impossible for you. Uh, Or depending on what's going on in your heart and in your life, even if you want rest, you're not sleeping well, and uh, you're desperate for something that may not be coming to you. Uh, Olivia and I, we had the opportunity to hike into the Grand Canyon back before Jordan was even born, uh, about 21 years ago in our first year of marriage. It was an awesome hike, and we intended to camp down in the canyon. And so we carried our backpacks down. They were full, completely full. Olivia carried down a 50-pound pack. I carried down a 65-pound pack, 10 miles all the way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. When you hike into the Grand Canyon, you descend 3,100 feet, and, and it's 10 miles. The last two miles are all in sand. And by the time we got to the very end of our hike, we were totally exhausted from carrying our packs. We were completely exhausted. And fortunately, we could take off our backpacks and we could jump in these beautiful crystal clear pools of water at the bottom of the canyon. Life is different than that. We carry burdens around and oftentimes those burdens we carry are not external. It's not as simple as carrying a backpack down and taking it off and jumping into a cold pool Uh, The burdens we carry are heavy, and we've been carrying them for a long, long time, maybe even our whole lives. And we can't figure out how to internally get rid of those burdens that we carry. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the burdens that we're really carrying here on December the 26th. We're going to talk about how Jesus came into the world. We've just celebrated his birth. We've just worshiped him. And now on December the 26th, you sit and you think, What difference does Jesus really make in my life? Can he help me get rid of these internal burdens that I'm carrying that are making it very difficult for me to find the rest that I so desperately need? By the end, we'll get to the good news of the gospel that absolutely Jesus came to relieve you of those heaviest of burdens, those internal burdens that you carry. But first, we're going to go deep, deep into the darkness, the reality of our human experience. We're going to talk about the burdens that we carry, and then by the end we'll talk about how Jesus relieves those burdens. Today we're in Isaiah chapter 59. Uh, This is kind of the culmination of our Jesus Restores series, and the title of this sermon is simply Jesus Restores Us to God. That's our greatest element of poverty in our lives. Because of the sin in our lives, the brokenness in our lives, we have been cut off from a relationship with God. How can we have a relationship with God? How can God restore us? How can Jesus restore us from the burdens and the brokenness that we carry? So first of all, we're going to look at the poverty that we have, our relational brokenness with God. That's in verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 59. 
And then we're going to look at coming to our senses. How do we confess our desperate need for this relationship to be restored? That's verses 9 through 15. And then finally, we'll rejoice together in verses, the end of verse 15 through 21, how our Redeemer did come into the world to fully restore us to God and alleviate us of all those burdens that we carry. So first of all, our greatest poverty. It's in our brokenness with God. Now, I'm not going to read the passage all the way through like we normally do on a Sunday morning, but I am going to basically read every element of this passage as I preach through it. We're just going to go through line by line, verse by verse, and I'm here to let you know that the gospel is front and center. We're going to drive a truck through the front door of your life. I just want to show you Jesus. I want you to experience the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. But first, we're going to go into our poverty to do that. Verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Another way of putting it is the problem that you have, the burden that you carry, the separation that you have between you and God, that's not on God. That's not on God. God is, his hand is not too short to save. The reason for your brokenness with God is not because of God, it's because of you. What's the problem then? Verse two, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem their relationship is not with God, it's with you and me. Our iniquities or our uncleanness before God has caused an impassable distance to exist between you and your God. It says our sins have caused God to hide his face from us. This speaks to our relational separation from God. He is saying, Isaiah, that our sin has caused this severing between us and God. Verse 3 goes on. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Here Isaiah is personalizing our sin. He's saying sin has affected our speech. It comes off of our lips and off of our tongue. Sin has affected our actions. He's saying blood is on our hands and our fingers. Fingers and tongue show that the stain of sin has affected the deepest parts of our humanity. Jesus is saying that our words and our actions reflect something even more prevalent, even more powerful. It's that this sin is actually generated from the deepest part of who we are, from our hearts. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 12, 34. He says our speech is, shows what's going on in our souls. Jesus said it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And our actions also show that what's true of us inwardly Jesus says in Mark 8, 20, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. From, from within him, out of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus says all of these come from the inside and make a man unclean. Jesus said the biggest problem that we have is that our hearts are broken. And because our hearts are broken, that overflows into our lips and it overflows into our lives. Our actions follow as well. And verse 3 goes on to say that we are now defiled with a stain of sin. Though we, we were originally created for God, now we are stained with sin and we're no longer fit to be in His presence. Now you may be thinking, is it really that bad, Corey? Is it really that bad? Are we really that sinful? Well, you need to embrace something 
unique about Christianity. A unique thing about Christianity, Tim Keller points this out, and he's right. He says that Christianity is both the most pessimistic and optimistic religion in the world all at the same time. All at the same time, we are the greatest pessimists about humanity, and we are the greatest optimists about humanity. So in order to understand the greatness of the gospel, you need to understand the depth of our human depravity. The gospel is like a sunrise, and the sunrise is most beautiful because it pierces through the real darkness of our lives. The gospel is like a diamond that's put against a black backdrop. When you go to buy a diamond, that diamond is beautiful. But when it's set against the black backdrop, it's even more beautiful. And so as Christians, we don't mince words about the depravity of our lives, the brokenness of this world. We own it. We look at the world and we say, yes, the world is broken and so am I. What does this mean for us and for the world? As you can imagine, it keeps on going. It's not good. Verse 4, no one enters lawsuits justly. No one goes to law honestly They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, they give birth to iniquity. Isaiah is saying, if you want to look out in the world and you see all these things that are going on in the world, absolutely. But before you point those fingers out at other people, realize they're pointing back at yourself. If you want to look at the problems with the world, like G.K. Chesterton said, when someone says, what's the biggest problem in the world? He said, I am. That's a great answer. Because the reasons for all the problem in this world, it's not the fault of of our circumstances or our situation. It's not outside of us. It's inside of us. It's generated from our hearts. We have traded righteousness for hypocrisy. We have traded dignity for self-centeredness. And when you pursue self-centeredness, it only moves from bad to worse. Look at verse 7. The descent is continuing. Their feet, that's the, the humanity, the feet of humanity run to evil They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Now instead of running to God, we run away from Him. We don't want to have anything to do with God. It's not as though we need to kid ourselves and say, we're just trying so hard to have a relationship with God. We're not. We're pursuing our own ends. We're self-centered and we're going after that with all our hearts. Unfortunately, that leads to desolation and destruction in the world. The result of our sin is ugly. Instead of helping others, we hurt them. This indicates a breakdown of society, a breaking up of what's well-ordered relationally in the world. When we serve ourselves instead of our fellow human beings or our God, then things implode The breakdown continues, verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, there's no justice in their paths, they've made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. What do way and path and road all communicate in verse 8? They communicate lifestyle. The lifestyle that we lead leads to a breakdown of not just personal peace, but also of social peace. Being separated from God puts us on a life path where personal peace and rectifying justice are just not what we experience. We know intuitively in our hearts that we need peace. We want it personally and for the world, but we're unable to produce it. In fact, what we produce is a furthering of brokenness in the world. The separation of humanity from God, of you from your God, has led to the breakdown of this world 
That is our situation. We are in relational poverty in our relationship with God. So there's a lot of pessimism there. There's a lot of bad news. Is it really that bad? It is really that bad. So what happens next in the story? Point two here is coming to our senses through confession and repentance. This is in verses 9 through 15. There are several reactions you could have at this point. The most common reaction of humanity is to say Christianity takes it too far. It's way too pessimistic, way too much bad news. Humanity is not that bad. Actually, humanity is pretty good. I mean, we, yeah, we kind of mess things up sometimes, and, but it's not that bad. You guys are just overplaying it. Sin is not that big of a deal. Well, I would say there's a lot of discontinuity, a lot of irrationality in that thought. Because simultaneously, when we say human beings are essentially good, there's not that many problems going on, really. Well, then you just turn on the news or you, you click on your favorite site and see what's going on in the world. You, you'll read about the sexual abuse of children, the affairs of political leaders and religious leaders, even pastors, persecution of people for their faith in Belarus, China, Iran, Somalia, civil wars in Syria, Myanmar, Sudan. Look, I mean, the world is breaking down and human beings are at the center of that. How bad is it? It's really, really bad. It's bad. And so as we point those fingers outward, we have to look inside of our lives and realize that we have participated in all that is being broken down by sin. We are profoundly broken at our core. We are not as evil as we could be because God is gracious to us. It could be worse. Yes, it absolutely could be. But it's bad. It's really bad because the depravity has sunk into every aspect of our humanity. The response that Isaiah encourages us toward is countercultural. It's not being irrational and saying, oh, at the same time, things are basically good and things are really bad at the same time. No, Isaiah points to us and says, no, you need to own it. You need to own it. Own your part. Own your part in the breakdown of your own life, in the breakdown of the world around you. Own your part. And Christianity calls that confession and repentance. Verse 9, it says, therefore justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to come to our senses. When you come to your senses as a Christian, which leads to confession and repentance, what does that coming to your senses entail? First of all, it means that we need to confess our darkness. Not just the darkness of the world around us, but our own personal darkness. We need to personally confess that we're lost in deep shadows. We're lost in gloom, as it says in verse 9. You need to own your darkness. I've had several people reach out to me in the last couple of weeks from the church. And this is what I'm here for as a pastor. They've reached out to me in their really low point where they're struggling with sin. And they, they want to talk to me about it and, and ask me what to do about the darkness that they're walking in. And it's a privilege to listen and to encourage them to put their hope in Jesus, to encourage you, Trinity Park, to put your hope in Jesus. That's what I'm here for. That's what Andy's here for. That's what our elders are here for. Please call us when you're struggling with what to do with the sin in your life. But the first thing you need to do when you come to your senses, you need to own the darkness. Own it. It's a problem. It's a problem, these things that you're 
struggling with, these sins that you're engaged in. Verse 10, it says, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. The second thing we need to confess when we come to our senses is our helplessness. It's not just our darkness, it's also our helplessness. We can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. Look at this. The illustration here, this is not someone, a man who has been blinded by an injury or a sickness. This is a man who is born without eyes. He can't see. He has no ability to help himself. The only way for this man or this woman to be able to see is if the God who creates us then recreates us and gives us spiritual eyes to see. Otherwise, we are helpless. We, we live in the darkness. We're helpless. We need to confess our helplessness second of all. Our hope cannot be for self-improvement or situational improvement. We need recreation. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. We moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. The third thing we need to confess is our bitterness of heart. Here the growling and mourning signify that our emotional life has separated us from God. Our sin has brought us deep frustration. We need to confess that to God. We're in the darkness, we're helpless, and we're also growling, emotionally wrecked internally. You need to confess your bitterness to God. Verse 12 and 13 keeps on going down. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So it keeps on going. What else do you need to confess to come to your senses? You need to confess your own personal guiltiness before God. That you're guilty. That you stand guilty before Him. Listen to what is articulated here. This is the imagery of a courtroom scene. And when God puts us on trial, our offenses are really obvious. They're super obvious to God and to other people. Transgressing is a willful refusal of God's way. Denying the Lord, a disavowal of loyalty. Turning backs on our God, turning our backs on God. Abandoning our relationship with God. Oppression and revolt, leading others down the path of our sin and hurting them along the way, uttering lies, spreading a contagion that contradicts what is good and what is beautiful. What do you need to confess to the Lord? What do you need to own about your guiltiness before God? What do you need to own? How have you been described here in this verse, verses 12 and 13? Before God, we have no defense. There's no attorney out there that can get us out of this. We are guilty before our God. So then fifth, after we plead our guiltiness, we need to then come to our senses and plead to the judge for mercy. You don't want justice from God. You don't want God's justice. You don't want God to actually put you on trial, find you guilty, and give you what your sins deserve. What you want from God is mercy. You need mercy from God. It's the only pathway available if our poverty is going to be reversed. Justice will never work. We don't deserve God's blessing. We need help that we cannot give ourselves. We need help from the judge. We need the judge to send someone on our behalf. 
to pay for our sins, to put us right so that we can be acquitted before the law. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. But who can do this for us? Who is able and willing to bring us the salvation we so desperately need? The section closes dramatically in verses 14 and 15. It says this emphatically, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. From Isaiah's perspective, it seems like there is no hope to be found, but then ushers onto the scene one who is called the Redeemer. An unexpected individual arrives in the story, and that's the third and final point this morning. Our greater Redeemer, Jesus restores us to God. Jesus restores us to God. He restores us. All those burdens you're carrying, all the darkness, the helplessness, the guiltiness, the emotional wreckedness of your life, All of that before the Lord. You plead for mercy and the Lord sends mercy here in the final section. Verses 15b through 21. Verse 15, such a beautiful, beautiful turn in the story. It says, the Lord saw it as he saw our situation and it displeased him. There was no justice. God looked, he looked and he was displeased. What was he displeased with? Well, yeah, he was displeased with us. But it's more than that. He was displeased with what had happened in his creation. He was displeased that Genesis 1 and 2 were wrecked by Genesis 3. And the sin of Genesis 3 were perpetuated throughout humanity, throughout history. God looked and saw it and he was displeased. He was displeased that rectifying restorative justice was nowhere to be found. And so what did he do? Verse 16a. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. The NIV has this as the word intervene, that there was no one to intervene. God looked, he looked around all of humanity. He looked for one man or woman, anyone that could intervene on behalf of humanity. But what he found was Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person had been wrecked by the fall And so 16b, this is huge. This is the turning point. He saw there was no man and wondered there was no one to intercede in verse 17. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He wrapped himself in a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God's clothing here shows that this act of salvation, God is going to work is revealing his true character, who he truly is to the world by the power and the presence of God's own unchanging character. God himself will redeem humanity. He will redeem you from your brokenness, from the fall of creation. God's restoration project has two parts to it, which we see in verses 18 through 21. Those two parts are salvation and vengeance. Salvation and vengeance. Let's talk about vengeance first, since that's the way Isaiah takes it up. First of all, verse 18, Isaiah says, according to their deeds, so he will repay. 
wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. There must be a final and full settlement for all of the evil that's been perpetuated in the world. There must be a settlement between the Lord and all who oppose him. And it will be one of absolute justice, it says, according to what they have done. God will reward the disobedience and the depravity of verses 1 through 15 with vengeance. With vengeance. Sometimes God's vengeance is tough for us to accept. But think about this. Think about what humans have contrived in our hearts and have propagated in the world. We've just talked about this. Think about the the rebellion that we have against God. Think about how it's affected our relationships with one another and with creation. Think about those who are unwilling to confess their sin to God and who instead persist on hurtful recklessness. Think about that. What is God to do with the real sin and the real depravity of us? What is he to do? He's a holy God. He's a just God. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't just turn a blind eye and act like it didn't happen. There must be repayment. There must be vengeance. So God's vengeance should make us afraid. It should make us afraid. We don't want to stand before God. We don't want to stand before the wrath of God. Is there a way for us to escape God's wrath? To receive God's mercy instead of God's vengeance? To receive salvation instead of justice? Is there a way for us to not get what we deserve and get what we don't deserve? Well, praise God, the answer is yes. The answer is yes in Jesus Christ. Look at me at verses 19 through 20. Here we see the salvation side rather than the vengeance side of the restoration project. Verses 19 and 20, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. He will come like a rushing stream or some translations say flood which the wind of the Lord drives along. It says, A Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, or as other translations say, who repent of their sin, declares the Lord. Just as sin and injustice have broken the world and wrapped their arms around the world, so Jesus Christ will come and invade the world as the arm of God, the arm of God's salvation for us, He will wrap his arms around the world. He will fully redeem and restore all that has been broken in the world with his salvation. I love this imagery of this pent-up flood or this rushing stream that the Lord will drive along. In the last 20 years, we've experienced two tsunamis in the world. Indonesia, that part of Asia, and also on the coast of Japan. And we've seen the devastation that's happened. Just the, the absolute... Uh, impossibility of anything standing in the way of these waves. To put that image in a positive way, to flip it in a positive way, this is the Lord's grace. This is the Lord's mercy. If God decides to give grace and mercy, and he has through Jesus Christ, then absolutely nothing can stand in his way. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing you could have built on the coastline of your life. Absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of God's grace and mercy coming in and reversing the curse and renewing and redeeming and washing away what has been on the landscape of your heart for a long time. How will this flood come to wash away the sin of the world? It's through the Redeemer of verse 20, 
who we know as Jesus Christ. How does Jesus redeem us? How does he wash away our sin? He redeems us by going to the cross. This baby that was born, we just celebrate his birth. He was born to bleed. He was born with a purpose. He was born to bring rectifying justice to the world as God poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. This baby would grow up. He would never sin. He would be subject to all the miseries of this world. He would be holy, perfect, the perfect spotless lamb. He would die on the cross for our sins so that if we trust in him and believe in him, we won't perish, but we'll have eternal life in him. This is the flood of God's grace. Think about the cross. Think about from heaven, the flood of God's grace flowing down to the world through the blood of Jesus Christ so that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Someone called me the other day struggling with their assurance of, of salvation. They've, they've trusted in Christ. They, they've prayed the prayers, but they still struggle with sin. And they were just asking me, how, do I, how can I know that I've been saved? And so I sent him some Bible verses and said, you need to read these verses. Don't just put your hope in what I have to say. Put your hope in what God has said about salvation. And what God has said about salvation is if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and confess with your mouth that he died on the cross, then you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's God's words. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 3.23, I've just quoted it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is your hope. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the flood of the blood of Jesus Christ that was given for you which washes away all of your sin, so that rather than being rendered as, as guilty, as defiled, blood on your hands, rather than God looking at you and decreeing that you are going to be judged by your depravity, instead he's going to look at you and decree that you're going to be judged through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this for? Who, who is God going to render that judgment for? When God views you right now, how can you know that you are a Christian? How can you know that your sins are forgiven? It says there in verse 20 at the end, for those who repent of their sins, for those who turn from their transgression, in order to receive this good news of the gospel, you've just worshiped Jesus Christ for becoming the incarnate one who would one day die for your sins. How can you share in what Christ has done for you the way you share in that? is by repenting, by coming to your senses, and by saying, Jesus, you are my redeemer. I have no hope outside of you and your sovereign mercy displayed for me on the cross. How can we be sure, this is Isaiah writing 700 years before Christ, how can we be sure this salvation will happen? Well, Isaiah gives us verse 21 as a closer God's promise to his people 700 years before Christ came could not be more solid or comforting. And we have seen Christ fulfill this in verse 21. As for me, God says, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth 
or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your descendants or your children's children from this time on and forever, says the Lord. God says this is a solid promise, first of all. This promise is solid. I've covenanted this promise to you. A covenant is a a time when God swears on his own name and swears on his own blood that he will not turn back from fulfilling his word. He is telling the truth. And so Jesus becomes our covenant. He, He seals the covenant in his own blood where God says emphatically, you see, I told you I'd fulfill my promise. I did send a redeemer. I've sent Jesus Christ on the cross. The promise is solid and the promise is second of all comforting where it says, my spirit and my words, which are yours, will never depart from you or from your children or from your children's children. This promise is for you and for your children, as Peter said in Acts 2, 38 and 39. God says, my covenant of redemption isn't just with you, which is unfathomable. If you go back and remember verses 1 through 15, he says his promise is for our children and our children's children that he will not fail to save all those who are called to him. And so we put our hope in the Lord, not just for ourselves, but also for the salvation of our children. So the gospel contains some bad news. Some bad news, it really does. And some of you have talked to me about that that bad news, about the real situation of humanity this week. The gospel is like a sunrise against a very dark skyline. The gospel... First of all, it tells us the bad news, but then it comes in with the good news. And as the sun rises and as the flood of the blood of Jesus comes, God washes away all of our sin. If you put your hope in the Redeemer, as it says at the end of verse 20. Today, as you wake up and get going the day after Christmas and like this room here right now at the church at Trinity Park, it's empty except for me and Andy in here. Do you feel empty? Do you feel like you're wondering, what is the purpose of all this? Where am I going? The purpose of your life is Jesus Christ. Are you longing for rest? You may not find rest today. You may not find rest because of the burdens you carry around. Like that day I hiked into the Grand Canyon with Olivia and I could just take my backpack off of all my burdens. That may be hard for you to figure out how to do. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ comes in as the arm of the Lord. He comes in ready to help relieve your burdens your internal burdens of sin that you've carried around. He wants you to put your hope in him. As you look towards starting a new year, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 59 is like a gospel fastball. It literally just comes in directly and says, this is who Jesus is. Will you catch it? Will you catch the gospel? Will you receive what Jesus has done for you at the cross, at the empty tomb, which started in his birth, over 2,000 years ago. Let's worship him. I pray for you this week that you'll have a week of rest in Jesus Christ as you hope in him. Thank you.